The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Good day, listeners. Today is September 28, 2020, and this is Renee Rosati a member of the Public Affairs Committee of the North American Spine Society and a fourth-year physical medicine and rehabilitation resident at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I would like to welcome everyone to the next installment of our podcast series, showcasing interesting articles from the upcoming Spine Line Journal. Today, we will be discussing the article by Dr. David O'Brien titled, New Interventional Spine and Musculoskeletal Medicine Fellowships in the September-October issue. You will have the pleasure of hearing directly from Dr. David O'Brien, who is on the board of directors for NAS. Our hope and goal is that this discussion will further expound his compelling article in our upcoming journal about Interventional Spine and Musculoskeletal Medicine Fellowship, which we will refer to as ISMM in this podcast. First of all, I would like to thank Dr. O'Brien for his time today. Dr. O'Brien, can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we move into the discussion? Yes, happy to do so, and I would like to congratulate you on uh, being in the next class of Interventional Spine Fellowship uh, members here at NAS. I think it's well-deserved for you. Thank you so much. As far as my background, more than deserving. So I think this is a great, uh, great thing for future residents uh, to look at. As far as my background, uh, I went to Indiana University of College and Medical School. I did my four-year physical medicine rehabilitation residency in Cincinnati, and then went on to uh, fortunately do a spine sports medicine fellowship with Dr. Bernie Portner back in 1995. So I've been in practice for approximately 25 years, mostly private practice until recently, um, primarily with large multi-specialty orthopedic groups. Until 2018, I was recruited to join MUSC as chief of physiatry and continue my fellowship here. Uh, So it was a very good opportunity. I was not able to necessarily continue that in private practice due to various issues. So this gave me an opportunity to continue uh, training fellows and uh, trying to uh, promote our specialty and uh, this subspecialty in a uh, positive light through NASP. That's wonderful. And how did you start taking fellows in the early days? Well, I started out, um, I was the first fellowship trained uh, physiatrist when I went to Indianapolis, Indiana back in, oh, I think it was about 1995-96, and I was uh, loosely affiliated with the residency program there, and uh, back then there weren't many residencies that actually had people that did interventional spine. Most of that was private practice based, uh, people like myself that did a fellowship, so we'd have residents come rotate through. And there was just an eagerness to learn this aspect of musculoskeletal medicine that the residencies uh, weren't providing. And that's pretty much how a lot of these fellowships uh, started to occur back in the uh, mid to late 80s through the 90s. Um, and since then, um, I, I started in Indianapolis, but I basically really started in North Carolina and Winston-Salem with uh, the group I had joined. And during that time period for 18 years, we had over 30 graduates um, from our program practicing in various areas of the country, mostly in the East Coast. Wow. So you've trained a lot of young physicians out there. Um, What do you enjoy most about being a mentor? Well, it's, you know, it's been a great experience for me. I learn by teaching, and I've learned a lot through 
the fellows through the years and it's made me challenge myself to continue to be up to date on things and continue to learn uh, being a fellowship director for over 20 years has given me the access to network with other uh, international directors around the country so i've made a lot of friends uh, i think it's the friendships and the relationships that have meant the most as far as me doing this and continue to do it um, i think uh, it's like running a marathon you have to train and train and train but then when you see people graduate and then they go on and, and do things and we keep in touch i think that's the most rewarding part of it that yeah gave somebody an opportunity that they may not have had in the past especially back in the 90s and early 2000s there weren't that many fellowships so uh, that was very re rewarding to pass along what I, I had the opportunity to learn to others yes it kind of becomes like a family tree and you see you know the people you train grow up and start training other people as well yeah and it's uh we have uh it's fun seeing them at annual meetings for different societies and some of them have stepped up into leadership roles with various organizations and uh, we have a good network of friends. That's great. Well, um, let's move in to talk about the article that you wrote for the upcoming Spineline Journal. Can you tell us what does a ISMM fellowship entail? Well, um, this is really to fill a need. So um, when I did a fellowship, I did a spine sports medicine fellowship. There was no pain fellowships back then. There was no credit sports medicine fellowships. Um, and so all that came later, usually uh, mostly uh, very end of the 1990s, early 2000s. So these uh, fellowships are basically people that have been around uh, some as long, uh, there might be a few longer than I have been around uh, 20 some years that have had these fellowships and they really fit a niche that isn't met with a traditional pain fellowship. Um, most of these are physiatry based and most physiatrists get trained throughout their residency uh, in a mix of orthopedics and neurology and musculoskeletal medicine. So this really started from residents coming to us asking for training back in the 90s. And back then they did start, uh, our uh, American Academy of Physical Medicine Rehab did start PASOR uh, fellowships, but then with the subspecialty in pain and so forth, that kind of um, disappeared. And so this kind of fills that niche and people that want to just gain more skills, uh, particularly interventional skills and how to treat various musculoskeletal problems without necessarily wanting to be a pain medicine subspecialist where you have to necessarily do uh, pediatrics and work on intubation and uh, behavioral medicine and a lot of other things that are not necessarily uh, geared along the lines of people that want to be pure musculoskeletal. Right. Yeah, it seems to fill a void. So, Dr. O'Brien, can you tell us what sets a NAS ISMM fellowship apart from non-accredited community training programs? Well, for a long time, there's been a need for uh, physicians and groups to, you know, they know there's some of these fellowships are out there, but they don't know how to distinguish one from another. And so that's where a lot of fellowship directors around the country recognize this need and also recognize the need for having a standard academic and educational program that was consistent across the country um, for these fellowships. And so that's where this came about. So there is a um, committee formed and there's a, um, an application process where the fellowship directors can apply. And it's based on you know, their academic uh, resumes um, and basically um, a list of criteria, whether it's publications, presentations, teaching, um, and other, other issues 
the to show that they have the the experience and background to to have these fellowships. So there is a an application process, and um, that's kind of gives people a minimum bar. That gives residents a minimum bar that they know that these fellowships have met a certain uh, uh, criteria to be NAS recognized and uh, to have that consistency in training that they can guarantee will be uh, on a national level with other fellowship programs. Gotcha. So it sounds like what spurred the need to create this kind of fellowship was um, standardization across the board. Because if I went to the spine doctor in my town and asked him to go ahead and train me for a year, it wouldn't meet the same criteria that NAS is kind of holding everyone accountable to. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, exactly. It gives residents and it gives uh, actually employers um, an idea of, you know, that these people and these fellowship programs meet a certain level of academic rigor. Um, there's, you know, been unfortunate stories about, you know, you know, people getting hired as fellows and not really getting trained or doing a lot of inpatient work and not getting, you know, exposure to the procedures or trained appropriately. Uh, hopefully those are far and few in between, but this is actually to give uh, residents that are looking for fellowships and appropriate training a resource uh, to go to. And I think it's only going to grow. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Now, I'm a fourth year and I just went through this application process and I'm in a class with other, other applicants who are interested in ACGME accredited fellowships such as anesthesia pain or primary care sports medicine. Why do you think applicants would choose this kind of fellowship over anesthesia pain or primary care sports medicine fellowship? Well, I do think there's a rule for uh, uh, accredited pain fellowships if you wanted to do pure pain medicine and perhaps be a, a director of a pain medicine program, especially in an academic center. Uh, those are helpful, but I've had you know over 30 fellows over the years and there's been probably thousands when you had all the programs together that really, uh, especially physiatrists and some neurologists and even family docs don't necessarily want to do pure pain medicine, which actually that has, you know, I think it, they have to do acute inpatient pain management, which is not really what physiatrists do um, and other specialties, palliative care, there's some behavioral medicine involved, pediatric pain management, um, sometimes cancer pain management, uh, intubation, and, you know, so there's a lot of different things, maybe, um, some PCA management on the inpatient side. Really, when I did my fellowship, and my fellowship that I did back in 1995 is similar to what I'm training people to do now, maybe more procedures than back then, but it's really just an extension of what we already are trained to do during our residency program, uh, especially as physiatrists, although these, these fellowship positions are open to any specialty, but uh, physiatry in particular, you know, we get trained on um, orthopedics and neurology, uh, kind of a mix hybrid of that throughout our residency program and a lot of musculoskeletal medicine. So learning these procedures, learning how to read imaging studies and incorporating that into just pure musculoskeletal practice is really what this is geared towards as opposed to just treating, you know, uh, symptoms or just managing pain. Uh, it's really more of a orthopedic based uh, training program. Yeah. Now, I know some residents, they just want to go straight out into practice without a fellowship, and that would include um, doing interventional spine procedures. Now, who's the ideal candidate to pursue an ISMM fellowship? 
Yeah, so I think anybody that's completed a, uh, a residency program and they have a special interest in learning these skills and how to approach people with spine and musculoskeletal uh, impairments and injuries from a different perspective. So uh, it's predominantly physiatrists that apply to these fellowships, although, again, there are some neurologists and family practitioners. I wouldn't be surprised if someday radiology uh, resident was interested in learning more uh, things along this line, even anesthesiologists. Um, so that's kind of the, the mix of people that are probably good at looking towards these fellowships. Uh, historically, um, there weren't as many fellowships, so some people did try to learn on their own, and sometimes that's successful. But I think as time goes on, it's just really hard to get the volume of procedures you need and have somebody right there uh, over your shoulder for a year training you how to do these appropriately. Um, I've taught uh, dozens of cadaver courses, and it's most of these people have to go through a few cadaver courses before they're even close to being able to do some of these procedures appropriately. And, and some of them have a lot of experience there. Some of them are experienced spine surgeons, but it is a different skill set, and a lot of them don't feel comfortable doing these procedures just after going through one or two cadaver courses. Many times they just want right. to go to the cadaver course just to learn what's the appropriate way that these procedures are being done, even though they may not do them. Mm -hmm. On another note, I've had people that have tried to go out into practice, and they've tried to do it for a year or two, realize they really just weren't uh, qualified to do this stuff or didn't feel comfortable doing it, and they came back and did a fellowship. Uh, with us. I actually had one one uh, fellow that completed a fellowship at another place which didn't do a large volume and did a second fellowship with us. So I think it depends on the individual and their comfort level, but I think trying to go out there nowadays with so many good fellowships and just try to go to a couple cadaver courses and then try to get privileges to do this can be a difficult unless you have some formal education and proof that you are competent to do these. To get privileges at hospitals or centers, sometimes you need letters of recommendation. Um, or some evidence of your training before they'll give you the privileges to do some of these procedures. That makes sense. And, you know, I've heard volume is the best teacher. And I think everyone could use an extra year under their belt to have a little more confidence in the procedures that they're performing, especially as new procedures come out and they become more advanced. Yeah, I agree. I think this Despite there's some variation on uh, the different procedures that some fellowships may offer, I think all the fellowships give everybody a good foundation to build upon if they want to add things later in their career. Great. Um, now, some applicants are concerned that having NAS recognition as opposed to ACGME accreditation will limit their opportunities for certain jobs at hospitals or it may limit their ability for insurance reimbursement. Do you think this is the case? No, not at all. It's kind of silly. I've heard that propagated over the last 25 years. And like I said, I've had over 30 graduates. None of them had problems getting privileges anywhere. As far as reimbursement, that's kind of irrelevant because reimbursement for, say, an epidural injection or a facet injection is going to be the same no matter what specialty you are or what your training program is. Uh, it's a set rate uh, for the procedure, no matter who the provider is. Um, I think, again, if somebody wanted to be a director of a, a pain medicine program, especially in an academic center, then they should be board certified in pain medicine. Now, the fellows that graduate from these programs and then go into practice can sit for the pain boards that they like, the American Board of Pain Medicine, um, if they want to get that subspecialty certification. But as far as practicing these procedures and getting privileges, I've never heard of anybody 
uh, getting uh, necessarily a problem getting that. Uh, occasionally, there's some political things that certain uh, centers that may pop up, but if you have the qualifications and letter of recommendations and proof that you've done hundreds of these procedures, it's kind of hard to say, no, you can't do those. I've, I've not had that happen to any of our fellows. Gotcha. That seems very reasonable. Now, in regards to NAF and their new recognition of this fellowship program, what resources does NAF provide for the ISMM fellowship programs, both to the fellowship directors or to the the fellows themselves? So NAF is a multi-specialty organization uh, made up of orthopedic surgery, neurosurgery, anesthesia, physical medicine rehab, radiology. So just the fact that it's a diverse organization, uh, I think is an asset uh, because uh, it's not just a single specialty or subspecialty promoting um, what they want. Um, NAS is uh, the largest spine society in the world. And uh, with all that membership and uh, activities, it, it does give a lot of resources. They have a really good website that's being revised, um, which gives access to all kinds of on, online learning. Uh, there's all kinds of meetings. They have a great educational center up at Brewer Ridge, Illinois. Uh, with great labs. Uh, we can do video there of uh, surgeries and other procedures we put together at times. Um, so I think the diversity with NAS, I think this, they have a very good staff uh, that is focused on uh, education and uh, health policy and other issues. It's just a great resource um, to have. And they're very well supported by a variety of um, businesses and, um, and uh, programs around the country. Excellent. That sounds great to have that kind of support behind this fellowship program. And I think another key thing with this is part of the reason these fellowships, you know, back when I was younger and started these fellowships, people would call and say, hey, can is it, your fellows got any jobs lined up next year? We're interested in finding somebody that's trained like you're training them. And so these fellowships will give a go-to place for spine practices around the world, essentially, let alone our own country, uh, to go and to find good interventional um, uh, practitioners. So right now, there's a lot of neurosurgical groups and orthopedic surgical groups that are looking for people with this training, and they didn't know where to go. They didn't know how to distinguish one fellowship from another. Now they know that there's a go-to place. So I think I wouldn't be surprised if there's going to be, a, you know, uh, you know, meetings, uh, greet meet meetings for people that are interviewing for jobs and I think it'll just be a good networking um, through NAS for people that have done fellowships looking for uh, various employment opportunities and vice versa. Well, that's very valuable as well. Now, the other thing the that first... is not to, but there's many committees to get involved with the NAS. Uh, there's uh, like four or five health policy committees. There's educational committees. Uh, we have now we have a committee uh, of people dedicated to overseeing this whole fellowship program. And then the board of directors recently approved a new section on interventional spine and musculoskeletal medicine that uh, people that get involved can help out with educational uh, um, programs or help with health policy uh, issues that pop up to maintain access um, through payers with this. So there's a lot of going on right now. And this is probably one of the faster growing areas uh, for uh, the non-surgeons at NAS. Wow. So let me ask you, what other areas of NAS are you involved in? Well, um, 
I've been volunteering for NAS probably for well over 15 years. I first started on their editorial board at TSJ and then got involved with their coding committee and uh, through doing a lot of volunteer work and I became chair of that committee. Uh, I was eventually honored in 2009 under then President Charlie Branch to serve as co-chair for his annual meeting um, in San Francisco. And since then, I've served probably on over a dozen committees, uh, been course director and faculty for numerous national and international meetings, um, been sitting on the board of directors for numerous years in different positions, uh, mainly as health policy director previously, and then I'm in my third term as the treasurer on the executive committee. So uh, one of the past presidents, Tom Pazuski, says, you know, as much as you give into the society, you'll get back. And that's definitely been true. I've uh, never thought I'd make it this far and meet so many people from around the country and of different specialties. And I've learned so much from them. So it's been very rewarding. And I think that's one thing I would encourage all young physicians is to get involved. Um, and with time, you stay involved, you'll learn. And, and uh, that's kind of hard to put a price on those things. So get involved quick and early and then Someday you'll uh, obviously be taking my place here. <laughs> All right. Well, I have one last question before we wrap up our interview. Um, the first official ISMM fellowship match occurred just about a month ago in August. We had 69 applicants applying for 41 positions, and 100% of the programs were filled. There are currently 24 host institutions that NAS recognizes for a fellowship. Where do you see this trend heading in the future? Well, I definitely think it's going to continue to grow. I mean, this was our very first year, and it was a huge success to fill all the spots. Uh, that just tells us we need more spots, and we do have other programs that um, are looking, I believe, to apply to become NAS recognized, um, because if you're not NAS recognized, then, you know, I, I don't think that helps helps um, your program. Um, so I think it's something that people want to be a part of. I think residents will come to be educated how important uh, these programs are for their, you know, potentially for their career. But I, I just think it's an unmet need. I mean, that's why all this started to begin with is we have a lot of people interested in learning these skills, learning more about musculoskeletal medicine and expanding on their residency, you know, training. And I think this is going to fill that that need. So I just anticipated a slow growth over the next few years. Hopefully, I have more programs, uh, more slots available for uh, residents of any specialty to apply to. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a real good thing for the future people that are in this subspecialty. I agree. That's wonderful. Well, I believe that wraps up the questions for today's podcast. Is there anything else that you'd like to add, Dr. O'Brien? No, just as usual, I'd like to thank the NAS staff for all their hard work behind the scenes putting these things together. And I want to again congratulate you and thank you for your time and putting these questions and podcasts together. Thank you. Yes, I'd like to echo that. I would like to personally offer my gratitude to all of those at NAS as well as the ISMM fellowship directors of all of the programs who've worked hard behind the scenes for many years to make this newly recognized fellowship and its newly formal match process a reality. Um, I just went through this process myself about a month ago. The NAS recognized ISMM fellowship programs. They were created to fill this void for applicants like myself who are seeking a recognized outpatient spine musculoskeletal focused training. 
I'm very excited to be heading to Emory next year to complete my fine fellowship and continue training to meet a pressing demand for a holistic approach to the treatment of acute and chronic back pain. Thank you for joining us today on our NAF Public Affairs podcast with help from Jeff Carson, Pamela Town, and Brianna Schaefer. I'm Renee Rosati, signing off from Nashville, Tennessee. And don't forget, stay spine safe.